I'm Jody Klugman Rab, a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. I took a DNA test for fun that led to the shocking discovery that the man who raised me was not my biological father, that I am an NPE or a non-paternal event. And I'm Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons. I've been a genetic and family investigator in Northern California since 2015. Most of my work focuses on interpreting DNA results and locating biological family. And that's how I met Jody. This is Sex, Lies, and the Truth, a collection of stories devoted to unexpected DNA discoveries, like donor conceptions, adoptions, or falsified and misled parentage discovered from at-home DNA tests, like non-paternal events. These are real people talking candidly about the rejection, shock, vulnerability, or fears that shape their stories. Some will make you laugh, cry, and cringe. You know, just like your family, only with a shrink and genealogist on call. Today, we're talking with Richard, a listener of the show who contacted me with interest to be a guest while we were on hiatus, sometime before the pandemic shut everything down. Richard is a great storyteller, and he experiences many of the same themes we've come to expect in NPE stories. I think his story was worth waiting for. My story is a little bit different than probably a lot of the people that you work with um, in that I did not make the discovery through recreational DNA testing. I'm 62 years old, and when I was about 30, I had an epiphany. Basically, while driving down the road, thinking about my life, I had become a father fairly recently for the first time. And for some reason, it dawned on me that my mother was only 20 years older than me. And um, I'd never given that any thought before. You know, I mean, somehow in there, you know, I knew it, but I'd never really thought about the implications of that. And, and so as soon as I realized that, I, I had this thought that like, well, that, that means that she was only 20 when I was born. And me being 30 and feeling overwhelmed at being a parent, I was like, wow, that's, that's wild. And then, and then I went, wait a minute, that, that means that she couldn't have been in college at University of Nevada in Reno for very long, which was an incongruity because I grew up hearing her talk about the glorious days of her college years in Reno. And, and so I, I realized that wait a minute, she, could have only, she couldn't have been there more than a couple of years, maybe even a year and a half. And she probably left because she was pregnant. And so as soon as she, I, I had that thought, I, I, just, I just had this visceral um, thought that this other guy, this guy named Dick Dorworth, that my mother talked about a lot and even had me take a ski lesson from once, would have been more likely to be my father than Bob McFarland, who I was raised to believe it was. It was it floored me. It was an astounding thought. I'm like, where did that come from? That's crazy. You know, I just and but I couldn't I couldn't shake it, you know. I couldn't like just boy, that was a weird thought and put it out of my head because it it had the um it had the weight of truth to it. And and on some level I knew this. Basically, it wouldn't leave me alone for seven more years. It kind of, it, as I'm sure you've heard other people, I, I obsessed about it. Like I would, and at the time, I was I was starting a family, I was starting a business. I had I had a full life at this time, 
And so this, this idea that this guy that my mom used to talk about was actually my father was inconvenient and bizarre. And, and I, I couldn't get it out of my head. When I was 37, I, I was down at my mom's house uh, for Christmas with my wife and my young son. And, and my wife basically kicked me out of bed at 11 at night on Christmas Eve and said, go talk to your mom. I'm sick of you obsessing over this. <laughs> so I said, mom, I got to talk to you about something. Um, you know, this is going to seem a little strange, but I would like to know if there's any possibility that someone besides Bob McFarland could be my biological father. And without missing a beat, she says, absolutely not. Your father and I were together at Thanksgiving. Intuition reveals itself in funny ways. Sometimes easy and smooth as though you've known it all along, but sometimes really hard with a jarring awareness. The thread of intuition has woven itself through the majority of DNA discovery stories we have on our podcast. And it's one of the hardest to talk about. There's no proof or empirical understanding of it. It's a felt sense, a subjective experience that brings with it a knowing. You just know it and you can't explain why. Now imagine this is presented to you as the parent. Suddenly the story you've lived is questioned just because of a hunch and with zero evidence. So by this time I've, um, I've home birthed two of my sons. And, and so I know a bit about like the human gestation and birth process. And so I said, oh, so Thanksgiving. Okay, so let me see. November, December, December. Mom, that's 10 months. And, and usually it takes nine. <laughs> and she says, well, you were late. You were a big baby. And I'm like, uh, that does not really, you know. And she tell me there's got to be something else. Are you sure, you know. And, and finally, she kind of broke down a little bit. She says, well, there, there was this one other time. But, you know, it, it couldn't be because we, we never even dated. And we were never in love. I'm like, that's not a prerequisite, <laughs> you know? And so finally she tells me the rest of a story that I knew part of. So I, I grew up hearing my mother talk about fire at her sorority house in Reno. When her sorority house burned down, you know, she was always afraid of fire when I was growing up, which naturally made me a pyromaniac. The other part of that story was that this is in, in 1956, sorority girls in Reno, Nevada were very closely chaperoned. Like they had a curfew and there were no boys allowed. Their sorority house burned down. And so for three or four days after that, the girls were kind of loose on the town. Nobody was really able to keep track of them. And so they did what normal, healthy teenage college students do under those circumstances. They went out drinking. And of course, they went out drinking with the guys on the ski team. And they ended up in the back seats of cars. So my mom tells me this whole story about being really drunk, being in the back seat of a car with this guy having sex. And then she says, um, and that guy was Dick Dorwood. And I'm like, I knew it. During the recording of this episode, I was on the edge of my seat. I could so relate to Richard's intuition and I could feel the dismissal he would get from most other people. So I asked him to explain how this understanding came from thin air. So I had some clues, you know, the first being that when I was 11 years old, I was a hot shit little skier. You know, my mom raised me on skis. We skied at Squaw Valley. And so like one year, all of a sudden, my mom was all excited. She's going, Dick Dorworth is teaching skiing here this year, and I've arranged for you to take a private lesson. I'm like, why do I need a lesson? I know how to ski. She taught me how to ski when I was about three or four, and I never took lessons. So all of a sudden, I'm 11 years old, and she's like, oh, you're going to take a lesson. I'm like, what? 
Dick is a, he's in the ski hall of fame. And even in the sixties, he was a, he had the world speed record on skis. He was a hot shit skier. Like, I, I think I just assumed this was a guy my mom probably dated when she was in college. So Dick is a journalist and, and he's prominent in the skiing and climbing community from all the way back in the sixties. So in my twenties, I became a, a river guide, a professional whitewater rafting guide and a ski patroller, a ski patrolling in the winter. And then I would pick up some outdoor magazine or see some ski publication and there'd be a story by Dick Dorworth and I would, I would read it. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is, he's a good writer. He's interesting stuff. And, and so I, I knew a little bit about the way that he thought about the world from his writing. Richard had unknowingly lived a parallel life to his biological father. They both loved the thrill of the outdoors and had the same active lifestyle. Richard said that Dick made much more sense as his father than the man who raised him, Bob McFarland. Mr. McFarland was the prodigy of solid Nebraska farm stock and married his mother when she was five months pregnant. He couldn't help but notice the difference between he and his birth certificate father. Like the most exciting thing they would do is get together and watch baseball on Sunday afternoons after church. And I was different. I was really, you know, I was adventurous. I was outgoing. I, you know, I, I, I was kind of rebellious, like, and I just never connected with the McFarlands. And I could never figure out why my mother and Bob got married in the first place. She, she divorced him when I was six. And I grew up until I was about 12 or 13, I would spend a weekend or two a month with him. And, and then by the time I was a teenager, I drifted away from him because I kind of had my own world and I never really bonded with him. And I now know, um, you know, some of the actual history that transpired there. My mom showed up back in the Bay Area from Reno, five months pregnant, and convinced Bob that he was the father. And the two families conspired to send Bob and Tony off to Napa to have a, a Justice of the Peace wedding. And then they sent out phony wedding announcements to their whole community saying that Bob and Tony had eloped to Las Vegas six months ago. They made up a big lie. And, and then, you know, life went on and nobody ever talked about it again. And so I grew up in this field where, like, my grandparents on both sides knew that something very weird had happened around my conception and birth and that Tony had probably pulled the wool over Bob's eyes. And they kind of knew it. They both, both of my grandmothers always kind of looked askance at me, like, you know, are you sure you're one of us? And so when I figured this all out, it explained all that. Like there was this sort of weird vibe in the family field that, that didn't make any sense to me when I was a kid um, or even as a young adult, but that all of a sudden made a lot of sense as a 37-year-old when I figured it all out. So after Richard had the conversation with his mother in 1994, he tracked Dick down at the Idaho Mountain Express in Sun Valley. He wrote a letter to Dick in care of that newspaper with all of the facts as he knew them, saying he wanted nothing save to know if his hunch was right. Christina would be very proud of Richard's letter. He later wrote an essay called Fathers and Sons that was inspired by receiving that letter and the chain of events that unfolded from his reading of that letter. Because there, there are other brothers, one of whom was given up for adoption that I later found and brought into the, the family. So, yeah, I wrote Dick a letter. He received it. He later wrote about it. But he called me within a day 
and 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 I'll never forget getting this phone call. I was I was at work and my office manager came out and and she knew the story. She says, Richard, Dick Darwin is on the phone. And and I went into the office and I said, Hi, this is Richard. She says, Richard, this is Dick Dorworth. Yes, I remember your mother, and we should talk. Within a couple of weeks of Dick receiving the letter, Richard asked to meet him. For an entire week, Dick and his namesake Richard skied together and bonded over stories and photographs of their lives. And pretty much at the end of that week, we were convinced that we were father and son. And then we later confirmed that, like within three or four months, we confirmed that with what was state-of-the-art DNA testing in, the 19, in 1995. For the last day that we were together and, and we were having lunch, I said, oh, Dick, there's, there's something I've been meaning to ask you. I said, do your thumbs do this? Richard's question to his father showed a shared genetic oddity in the bending of the thumb joints, something I happen to have as well that we joked about being a newfound relation. Because so far, none of my known biological relationships carry the same double joints in the thumbs. And leaving Sun Valley that night, it was like one of the most contradictory emotional states I've ever been in. In other words, I was, I was deeply satisfied and happy to have met my father. And I was also in the deepest grief I've ever been in around what I'd missed out on and, you know, what I'd been denied, my birthright. Because I could tell Dick's a good guy, you know, and he, he's an interesting person. He's, he's somebody I would love to have had in my life. And then, of course, there's the whole regret thing. Like, I'd made huge life decisions to get married and have children and give up my career as a rafting guide in order to start a family. And I'd made these big life decisions without the benefit of knowledge of who I am. That stayed with me for more than a decade. I was pissed about that for a long time. In addition to the theme of intuition, I am particularly curious about the influence of these discoveries on identity. They are profound because identity is so fundamental to our functioning that we take it for granted until it's called into question. I asked what different decisions Richard may have made, and they were big ones. I probably would not have chosen to get married and have children uh, when I did because like, I kind of gave up a career as a professional river guide right at the time when, the, when internationally things were opening up in that field. Like I could have gone to Africa or to Norway or South America and worked for these companies that were doing international. And instead, you know, I had a kid and that kind of changed everything. And, you know, I have three sons. I love them. They're like the joy of my life. But at the time, I was like, fuck, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have gotten married. I wouldn't have tied myself down. I would have been pursuing my career as my guy. I mean, my father was a mountain guide. You know, he he was a, a mountain climbing guide um, for the best in the world. And and he's been all over the world doing that. And And so in some ways, that would have been an appropriate calling for me to be a river guide. And, and I would have, you know, if I'd known that that was my lineage, uh, it, this is how the, story, the narrative went in my head anyway at the time. If I'd known that was my lineage, that's the course I would have pursued. And I would not have pursued the more mainstream, you know, starting a business, starting a family, the domestic life that I actually really resented for, for a long, like I went through a period of real darkness in my life where I resented the circumstances that I found myself in. Feeling alone in this discovery and identity confusion, Richard sank into that darkness until it affected his marriage. Richard later found an organization that helped him tremendously. 
San Francisco's Bastard Nation. Modeled after the queer rights organization, Queer Nation, Bastard Nation aggressively fought for access to adoption records for adoptees so that they could understand themselves when the genealogical bewilderment hit. Richard learned about late discovery adoptees and it really resonated with him. They had a lot of the same issues in common that I did. You know, like the people that are supposed to care most for you lie to you about one of the biggest things in in your life. But, you know, I went to lots of talk therapy. I went to a number of different therapists and they'd all kind of go, wow, that's, that's a story. Until this technology of recreational DNA testing, it's an archetypal thing. It's a mythical thing, but it's not really something that gets confronted that often. Actually, I think it was actually more talked about and accepted in the in the Renaissance and Middle Ages. I mean, it shows up in Shakespeare and like all the time. But somehow in our kind of prudish Victorian civilization, it just doesn't get talked about. Richard says the resulting impact of this discovery on his identity took 15 years to fully reconcile and included abusing alcohol as part of a destructive coping mechanism. Many well-meaning friends and therapists will miss the identity crisis in a DNA discovery, dismissing the emotionality out of reflex to save themselves from something uncomfortable. The identity crisis that DNA discoveries bring are significant and also play a role in changing family relationships. So as part of that was the drama with my mother during those years also. At first, she was kind of accepting and she actually exchanged some letters with Dick They're both published authors, so they exchanged books, but they never met. My mother didn't want to meet him. I tried to get her to go to counseling with me. You know, I begged her. I, you know, and I waited a year to talk to Bob McFarland about it. Like I, I kept it kind of under wraps for her benefit for about a year because she was kind of emotionally fragile around it all. But eventually I'm like, I'm I'm not going to keep your secret for you. You know, this is my life. Um, I've got, kids that want to know their grandfather. And, and, you know, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in my life. And she was really angry with me for that. She wanted me to keep her secret for her. And so like seven years after discovery, something like that, her brother wrote me an email and said something like, I can't believe that you're associating with this rapist. Do you know how hard this is on your mother? And I was like, what? Where where did this story come from? Because she set me up with ski lessons from him. She always talked about him like he was a hero. She named me after him. (laughs) Richard's mom went to a therapist who did repressed memory therapy, which triggered the rape story. This type of therapeutic intervention has probably been the most widely criticized and debated form of therapy due to the prevalence of false memories, inciting irreparable family rifts and accusations bearing significant consequences. And for Richard, it led to irreparable problems with his relationship with his mom until her death in 2004. We had a lot of unfinished business. She never forgave me for outing her, basically. So that was, that was hard. I really wanted to work things out with her and have it be okay. She was not going there. You know, she'd spent 40 years creating a, an illusion for herself. She you know, wasn't going to step out of it. Richard's mom exhibited a lot of aggression toward him for the discovery and pursuit of the truth living openly with it and thereby eroding the carefully constructed narrative she had lived by. My theory is that the moms create these narratives to live as society demands them to, covering up indiscretions with all means necessary in order to remain the good girls, the marriageable girls, and acceptable. 
From an evolutionary perspective, if you don't do what the group wants you to do, you no longer have their protection or benefits. So it becomes life and death. So when their carefully constructed narrative is challenged, it triggers a life or death response in our reptilian brain, and they lash out to protect the secret. This need to protect themselves is so strong as to negate any motherly nurturance, allowing them to lash out against their own child. This is entirely my speculation, of course. Because, you know, on a lot of levels, my mother was a generous spirit and, and she was not malevolent particularly. But I think, I think this lie tore her up for her whole life. Yeah, she was, she was definitely not stable in, you know, in later years, even before this came out. I'm not a mom, <laughs> but I can imagine how conflicted that would be, you know, uh, internally. Like all your biological instincts are telling you to like, do everything in your power to care for this child. And yet you've created a lie around it from the very beginning. And, you know, I think my mom, she was a single mom for about six years there. It was the sixties and she was kind of being wild. There weren't that many single moms in those days. And I think that she was thinking about telling me or like part of her thing was setting me up with ski lessons with Dick, she wanted to see us together and see if there would be any recognition between us. There was some some twisted kind of curious element to what she did that year. You know, when I've talked to her about it later, she says, yeah, once I saw who he was, I didn't really want anything more to do with him. He was a hippie at the time, you know, he was a ski bum. That doesn't really line up because she was a wild woman in those days also, you know? <laughs> yeah, and then she later remarried again to a, a, a very kind of straight-laced Ohio guy who at the time, when I was a teenager, I really kind of rebelled against him. I didn't connect with him. But as adults, we became quite close. And, you know, I considered him my stepfather. But, you know, I, when I tell this story to people, I, I have three fathers. I have my, my adoptive father, Bob McFarland, my stepfather, Dick Faber, and my biological father, Dick Dorworth. You know, Dick Dorworth and I have a great relationship these days. He's 81. He still skis 100 days a year. It's not a normal father-son relationship at all. In some ways, it's easier because we have none of the baggage of childhood that a lot of parents and children have, you know, because we didn't meet until we were adults, really. The quality of the relationship with the newly discovered biological parent is often overlooked due to the more contentious and attention-grabbing relationship with the known biological parent. Richard's point is an excellent one. The relationship with the new biological parent is on purely adult terms with none of the adolescent history that clutters parent-child relationships, but it also doesn't come with the same bond. Richard's relationship with Bob McFarland, his adoptive father, never included a bond either. He waited a year after discovery to talk to him while his mom wrestled with the guilt of collecting child support from him until Richard was 18. And so she didn't want me to tell him at all. But I said, look, I got to talk to him. You know? So anyway, when I, when I did finally talk to him, his reaction was very telling. Almost without emotion, he just kind of said, oh, gee whiz, that, that's too bad. There was no visceral reaction, you know. So, I mean, at some level, I think he knew. So he remarried when I was about 10. And Judy is my stepmother. And who she later divorced him because she came out as gay when I was a teenager. But she and I have remained fairly close. And, and I, I actually talked to her about this before I talked to him. 
And she said, you know, I think I probably asked him the same question when you were a kid because you guys were so different. And she kind of knew enough of the story of their circumstances. And so I think she wondered about it when I was a kid and asked him. And so when I talked to him finally, he just kind of took it in stride. And, and to his credit, he said, you know, even if I'd known, I wouldn't have done anything different, you know, which was really cool of him. Sex, Lies, and the Truth is written and produced by Christina Fitzgibbons and Jody Klugman-Rab, two moms and professional women living the dream. We crack each other up, we can sniff out the truth, and we help people tell their stories. If you or someone you know would like to tell their story, you can reach us at sexliesinthetruth.com. If you are a fan of Sex, Lies, and the Truth and want to support us, you can do that through Patreon. Patreon is a really cool platform where fans of shows like ours can pledge a small amount each month, even just a few dollars, to support the show. You can find us there at www.patreon.com forward slash sex, lies, and the truth.